0: I'm the producer of A Public Affair, Jade Siri Ramos. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the station. We take donations all year long at WORTFM.org. Thanks.
1: Six foot six above sea level. I grabbed the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low no power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the feet to play. Good afternoon
0: and welcome to a public affair. My name is Rochelle Wilson and I'll be your host this hour. I'm filling in for Ali Moldra, who will be back next week, and I'm sending some radio love her way while she's on vacation. Back in late November 2022, the company OpenAI released a chatbot called ChatGPT that took the internet by storm. I first learned about it from a friend while applying for jobs. He opened up ChatGPT and asked it to write a letter of recommendation for me. Note, I did not use this letter. (laughs) But he included a prompt that included my real name and made up information about my background in fashion and dance. Within seconds, the chatbot generated a serviceable document. It really did look like a letter of recommendation and a pretty glowing one at that, but it was also pretty boring and formulaic, and oh yeah, it was fake. Within just a few days, ChatGPT had one million new users sign up. In the days and weeks that followed, ChatGPT went from being a fun experiment to yet another reason to sound the technology alarm. Unsurprisingly, the chatbot was churning up false information, including flat-out made-up citations, and reinforcing harmful stereotypes. Academics and professional writers in particular wondered and worried about the future of their professions. How will such powerful technology shape student essays, academic research, and the craft of writing in general? Is it truly a case of the robots stealing our jobs, or is it something else? Joining us today to talk about the history, future, and ethics of artificial intelligence is Robin Zebrowski. Robin Zebrowski is an AI theorist and professor of cognitive science at Beloit College, where her work spans the fields of philosophy, psychology, and computer science. She is co-author of Great Philosophical Objections to Artificial Intelligence, The History and Legacy of the AI Wars. Robin Zebrowski, welcome to A Public Affair.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today, especially with um, it being the first week of classes and a busy time. (laughs) Yes, fun times. So you've been working in AI for a long time now, and at least just kind of in my experience as a bystander, I feel like I get pummeled with sort of tech evangelists telling me just how great AI is, and also lots of critics and people worrying about it and thinking it's like the worst thing to happen to us. So what is the lay of the land and how do you feel about it?
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of accurate. Like It's all moral panic on one side and AI hype on the other side. Um, But for those of us who've been in the field in a while, this is like a cycle that just comes back around all the time. Um, And it's interesting to see the again, like the moral panic with ChatGPT. In part, like every day for the last month and a half, I've seen people posting articles like, what are you going to do in your classes? ChatGPT is out there. And I'm like, Yeah, but GPT-3 was out there before. And like, you know, we've had these sorts of bots for a while. They're better by far, but they're not as new as people think they are.
0: Yeah, I was specifically going to ask about that because a lot of colleges in Wisconsin are back in session this week, and it's the first full semester professors are dealing with this wide availability of chat GPT. Um, and there's been, as you say, a lot of hand wringing and moral panic. What's your take when it comes to, you know, professors who might be worrying about this?
1: I mean, I think some of them maybe are right to worry, Um, and in part, it's just because of the way higher education works in the United States, right? If you have 150 students and you kind of feel like you ought to ask them to write papers, you're probably giving kind of lousy prompts and you're probably accepting kind of lousy work. And yeah, in those cases, maybe ChatGPT is going to do the work for them. Um, But in that case, those are the kids that were just going to Google their paper anyway. So like it's not replacing the kids who are going to do the hard work to begin with, I think.
0: Well, how are you dealing with it in your classroom? So um, this semester I'm
1: teaching I teach for several different programs and I'm teaching one philosophy class. Um, Where I do have a final paper that they have to write, I've told them up front they should not be using ChatGPT to to, to write the paper. Um, But that's partly because I want them to use the sources that we use in our class and I want them to use the the unique ways that we've been talking about these concepts. Um, In my AI class though, I actually changed their final paper and I'm letting ChatGPT write their final papers for them. So they're going to spend the semester figuring out how to ask good questions instead, because if you ask bad questions, ChatGPT is garbage. Um, But I'm going to ask them to start learning how to craft good questions, which is secretly the work I want them to do anyway, because that's, you know, that's academia. Um, And so we're going to spend the semester... Crafting good questions, they're going to ask G- ChatGPT to write their final papers, but then the real final is they have to give a presentation correcting everything Chat GPT got wrong <laughs> or hallucinated or made up. So that's the real assignment.
0: Yeah. And what is ChatGPT's track record? It's very young, you know, but I've been hearing a lot about false information and things like that. What's what's going on with that? Yeah,
1: um, the term that most people are using for it is it hallucinates. Um, And that's something that you only catch if you know what you're doing. Um, So as you mentioned with the entirely fake letter of recommendation, (laughs) um, if you ask ChatGPT really specific questions like in in a niche academic discipline, the more you craft your question, it will start giving you very confident responses that will be completely made up. They will, it will invent actual citations to papers that don't exist. Um, I understand that it's giving papers by real authors in real journals, but with completely different titles. It'll like serve you up a DOI that goes to something different. So it's really dangerous if people don't pay attention to what it's doing.
0: Yeah, it feels like another layer of kind of digital information literacy that's going to be needed. I saw a journalist actually ask um, ChatGPT to write a bio for her, and it made up (laughs) some of the work that she had done. And I think part of what makes it seem so nefarious is that it really seems, I I think to an untrained eye, it seems like well-written, as in the prose doesn't have a lot of mistakes. But what about the information? Yes,
1: yes. I've heard that. um, So I haven't played with it tremendously a lot because I've played with chatbots like this for, you know, 30 years. Um, But I've heard that. It's giving, if you ask it to like write a paper, it's really boring paper, Mm -hmm. Um, especially like undergraduates, again, because they're asking really generic questions like what did Hume say about perception? And they're getting this really dull response. Um, And I don't know, I expect more than that from my students. And so I'm not super impressed.
0: I agree. I would say the papers I've seen as a grader myself, I'd give it a C, like at best. (laughs) And, you know, there's there's just so much more to writing and researching than that. But, you know, if I'm going to put myself in these shoes for a minute of worrying about this technology, you know, I'm kind of wondering what does it reveal about our priorities and what our priorities should be? Why do we want students to be able to write well? Why do we want professionals to be able to write well if we can potentially outsource that skill?
1: Yeah, so that's where my, my philosophy trading kind of takes over. Um, philosophers pride themselves on writing well, which is almost never the case. Philosophers are dense and jargony, um, but they write well insofar as ideas get formulated in that writing that haven't been formulated in other ways. Um, and I'm never gonna think that writing is going to not be important, uh, in part because writing is a kind of thought. So, uh, again, I take my, my cues from the French philosopher Merleau-Ponty here, who, who talked about speech this way, like speech is thought, it's not translating thought, it's not you thinking up a bunch of ideas and then spitting them into to words, the, the speaking and the writing are literally a kind of thinking, as far as I know, no other format, no other media does the work that learning to write well does.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. My name is Rochelle Wilson and today we're talking with Professor Robin Zabrowski about all things AI. And what are your thoughts on ChatGPT or other new AI technologies? If you're listening, you can join the conversation anytime this hour by giving us a call at 608-256-2001 and our receptionist will route you right in. We'd especially love to hear from first-time callers, again that number is 608-256-2001. You can also reach out via the A Public Affair page on Facebook or on Twitter at W-O-R-T Talk. So Robin Zabrowski, let's wade into the wide world of AI ethics, starting with labor. Why have visual artists in particular been so outspoken on this issue?
1: Yeah, so um, in a, in addition to the release of Chat GPT, we saw, wow, just an explosion of these. And I think most of them came out, I don't know, sometime last semester, I, I think in academic terms, um, but there was Dolly Two. There was Mid Journey. There still are. All of these are still active, um, and there. I know that there's been a, a recent lawsuit, which I'm so excited to just see how this goes because this is it's the wild west of this kind of technology, and so there's not a lot of regulation at all. Um, and I saw that three artists, including one that I know and love, Sarah Anderson, who does Sarah Scribbles, um, are have have started litigation against stable diffusion who is responsible for, um, Dolly 2, right? Is that? No, wait, that's OpenAI. Sorry. Um, But they started, uh, oh, Stability AI is the ones who did. uh. I've
0: got ChatGPT fact checking you in the background. Good.
1: (laughs) Please do. Um, I can never remember which ones uh, have have done which technology because they all come out at once because it's like an arms race. So Dolly came out immediately, Mid Journey and Stability Diffusion and all these other things. Um, But yeah, so they've started litigation because. You can make artwork in their style that they are not involved in, right? And the 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 algorithms were trained on their artwork and they were not compensated for this. So who needs to hire an artist, especially a particular artist whose style you like, when you can literally type a sentence into a generator and have it spit out a very believable mock of one of their pieces of art?
0: Well, maybe you can back up for a minute for us and help us understand how does this AI get trained and how do the companies making it get access to these data sets?
1: Yeah, um, that's tricky. So the, the data sets are massive. And I actually don't know exactly who's responsible for compiling the data set that mid-journey or or, uh, stable diffusion or anything we're trained on, I know that a lot of it is scraped from um, publicly available images. So artists that promote their work online and post their own images, there are are things that come through and scrape all of that and then feed this enormous data set into the algorithm. Um, It's easier in some ways to understand how it works with text than with uh, images, but it's pretty much the same. So they feed all this data in, and then there's usually a training period where researchers know what they're looking for, and they'll try and say, okay, so if I want you to answer this question for me, what are you going to say? And if the, the algorithm gives a response that's not quite right or produces an image that's not quite right, the um, either it's automated or actual people go in and say, no, we wanted this response instead, and that changes the algorithm. The algorithm goes back and alters Um, its structure so that the next time it's asked that question it knows what the right answer is and it then can generalize Um, and that's how the the chatbots work as well they're not actually like they don't understand speech at all they're simply predicting what the next word ought to be based on what the previous word was and it's similar with the imagery they're predicting what kinds of um, visual style something should look like based on what it's seen before that has that um, tagging
0: Yeah, the visual imagery, it's so interesting because I've actually ever been tempted to use it. You know, I used to be the producer for this show and we have to come up with an image every day that goes along with the show that we did. And sometimes it's really hard to come across something that's in the public domain. And a lot of newsrooms are lacking in the budgets to have these visual assets and to have designers and artists kind of on payroll. And I remember Charlie Warzel, who now writes part-time for The Atlantic and part-time on his own Substack, had this big controversy where he had to release this apologia that he had used AI art um, in one of his columns. I mean, just what do you make of all of this? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because as soon as I started
1: seeing this influx of folks posting AI art Um, I realized that like academics were also going to do this because academics that do PowerPoint presentations just steal their images and they don't even cite their sources most of the time, which absolutely is like the, the least academically appropriate thing for them to be doing. Um, But I almost always just see these images stolen from the web for people's PowerPoints. Um, And I'm always kind of careful not to do that. And if I am stealing something, I always cite the source at the very least. Um, And I remember seeing all these folks posting images and I'm like, this is going to get used so that we don't have to steal images anymore. Um, But of course, that's what the litigation is about. So those of us that see this as a a free way to, to make engaging PowerPoints, it's not free we we've absolutely used all of the labor of the artists that have made all of that work to begin with who have not been compensated and so all of the ai companies that are going to sell these algorithms are going to you know be even richer than they are and the artists are going to still be you know struggling artists as they already are
0: yeah this this is the kind of thing that like boils my blood because it really feels like the reason why we would ever want robots to take over is to do all the boring stuff so that we humans can do the fun creative stuff like making art and making literature and whatnot i mean what where did we go wrong um
1: yeah i i mean i think this is a really good question um it's it's not clear that we went wrong exactly um i think that most people still do see some of this as automating work that could then free up labor for other things it just never never plays out that way right we even have fiction reaching way back that shows us that's not how it's going to go um i used to show fritz lang's metropolis in my ai class like 15 years ago uh, and it's all about like automation and capitalism and class struggle and like this was this was made in 1921 or 23 or something. Like it doesn't seem like these are new questions in a lot of ways.
0: No, absolutely not. And how, you know, it makes me kind of feel like we're in the midst of another industrial revolution. Yes, yes. Um, I often, oh, yeah, I often
1: notice that um, there are these like tech evangelists. who who turn away from their own work. Uh, I think about like um, a book that came out and I don't remember when it was, I don't know, at least 10, 15 years ago by Jaron Lanier, who was um, one of the pioneers of virtual reality. And he then turned out a book called You Are Not a Gadget when he was like, this is not okay. We shouldn't be doing this to ourselves. Um, And this kind of thing happened all the way back to the beginnings of AI work as well. uh, oh, Joseph Eisenbaum who made the first chatbot, who made Eliza, the very first uh, therapist chatbot in the 60s, went on for the rest of his life to critique this kind of work and say, no, this is
0: dehumanizing.
1: Stop doing it.
0: So it seems like the closer you get to it and the more information you have, the more horrifying it is. And, you know, it it does feel like sci-fi has been just wrestling with this question all along and um i yeah i think we'll be wading into that throughout the conversation but i wanted to get into another long standing ethical problem with ai and that's the way it reinforces racial gender and other biases and stereotypes can you tell us more about the history of that cuz this is actually not a new problem as i understand no
1: um i can't remember when the first case was that i heard about but it was so long ago i like 20 years ago, these were being used to uh, make judgments in court cases. So there were, um, there were uh, specific algorithms that were being sold to courtrooms that were then making decisions about uh, people who were on trial and no one knew how the decisions were being made. We just knew that once they were being examined after the fact, we were learning that a black man and a white man, for example, were getting different sentences based on demographic data. Nothing about these particular individuals, just demographic data. Um, And of course, as always, the minorities were being punished more than the the non-minorities. Um, And this is a theme that just comes back again and again and again throughout almost every single iteration of these sorts of technologies. If you tell me about a kind of algorithm that's been deployed in society, I will tell you how it has been oppressing someone. Um, It's really bad. Uh, I remember Amazon got in a lot of trouble for making a facial recognition technology called recognition with a K instead of a C. And they secretly sold it to a bunch of police departments and the police departments never had to tell anyone they were using it and they were deploying it widely. It was really, really bad. Um, And a graduate student at MIT, I think, I think, please, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. I think this was Joy Belomini's work as a graduate student where she did the math and showed how bad this particular algorithm was at identifying anyone who wasn't a white male. Um, And so over-policed communities were now being more over-policed because of these technologies. Um, Amazon got in trouble for it at one point they tried they tried so hard uh, to not be sexist in hiring they recognized that they were hiring mostly men so they went through and they they built an algorithm to screen resumes and and look for certain things Um, and they found out that all the resumes that were getting put forward were again of men and when they finally went in and tried to figure out why that was they noticed that their algorithm if you had like women's tennis on your resume, you were getting dinged for that because what the algorithm was looking for was people who were like the current employees. They were like, oh, these people are great. We like them. Let's get more of it. But they didn't realize that the bias was in there, in the data, in the training set. And so they built this ridiculously awful algorithm that they had to stop using.
0: Well, and it feels like the bias doesn't even need to be in the training set in so far as... These are getting built by humans. I mean, what do you make of this? I think some of the big champions of algorithms are kind of putting forward that it is a more objective way to arrive at decisions and you're taking out the human decision making. What's wrong with that line of argumentation?
1: Oh, my God, everything. It drives me up a wall when people say this. Like, if you if you try to tell me algorithms or data are neutral, I, immediately I'm going to go, okay, you don't know what you're talking about. Data is never neutral. We always interpret it, and we always gather specific kinds of data. It's not like we just have unfettered access to data as some capital D, you know, data, we have instead specific questions we've asked of the world and information we've gathered in particular ways. Um, And that information is always biased because we've always figured out what we're looking for. Um, And there's one uh, scholar of this work who I will always put forward as doing the right thing here. Uh, his uh, Professor Jonathan Flowers, and he wrote a paper where he argued that these data sets are not biased in the way we think they are. They're literally just holding a mirror up to society. They're showing us exactly what we're already doing. Um, and it's beautiful. It's exactly correct, I think, that that it it's amplifying because of the ways they can be deployed. Instead of just one racist judge, we now have an algorithm that racist, not, maybe not obviously racist judges across the country are deploying. Um, and so it's amplifying the worst parts of humanity in a lot of cases.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Rochelle Wilson, and today we're talking with AI theorist and professor Robin Zabrowski about the ethics of artificial intelligence. Now, we have Robin for another 30 minutes or so, so please call in with your burning questions about AI or your, you know, passionate opinions one way or the other. We do want to hear from you. The number is 608 256 2001 or you can visit us on Facebook at a public affair or on Twitter at W O R T Talk and those questions will get passed on to us. Again, the number 608-256-2001. So I want to kind of keep going on this ethics train and ask you, Robin Zabrowski, about facial recognition software. Let's get into it. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I, I have very strong feelings about facial recognition software. So Um, Again, part of it is just having been in the field for long enough and having seen what makes the algorithms do what they do and understanding how they work, um, I've been pretty well convinced that there is no ethical use of facial recognition technology. I used to think that maybe there could be like we had the data, we had the the technology, the algorithms themselves, maybe there was something good we could do with them. And there's a philosopher who does a lot of ethics of technology, um, Evan Selinger, and I've just been convinced by his work that there is no ethical use of facial recognition technology should be banned across the board. Um, I think about ways that it's deployed, um, the, the, the social credit system in China that we've heard about, Um, And there was, when some of the technology was created, it was being deployed at like train stations in China. And they were just picking up everybody for like random little infractions. Imagine you like had a parking ticket and you are hauled away in handcuffs at a train station because an algorithm picked out who you were. Um, It just seems to me, and, and not to mention that there are questions about ethnic minorities, you know, genocides and things potentially happening in various places around the world um, where facial recognition technology is playing a role. Um, and I just, I can't think of any way to use the technology that couldn't be done another way. Um, so, yeah, I just, I firmly believe there's no ethical deploying of, of facial recognition tech.
0: And I also, I wanted to kind of bring out something you had mentioned previously about The way specifically this technology is actually just like ineffective and wrong when it comes to certain groups. Um, I mean, no one's going to be surprised here, but can you tell us what are the groups that where facial recognition software tends to be accurate and what are the groups who tend to be not? Yes.
1: um, So the I think I mentioned earlier, the recognition software that um, Amazon created uh, and I think it was Joy Belomini's master's work. I can't remember. She was a graduate student, but it blew me away. She's a, a black woman, and she was being forced to use one of those um, proctor some proctoring software, which was heavily deployed over the pandemic in particular, um, where there would be some sort of facial recognition tech watching you take exams on your own computer in your own room. Um, and we learned really quickly during the pandemic that people who were white were pretty, they didn't have a lot of trouble. So the software watches where your eyes are, it tracks your face to make sure you're not looking at other screens and doing other stuff. Um, And she noticed that she couldn't get it to recognize her face. So she was like, hello, I'm here, please, you know, let me take my test or whatever it was. And it didn't work. And she held this like white mask up to her face and it was like, okay, we see you're a person now. No, Um, yeah. Right. Like so (laughs) offensive and horrible. Um, and so she started researching this work. She actually, um, she created the Algorithmic Justice League, which I think is the greatest title for a, a, an AI advocacy group ever. Um, but she uh, she was the one that I think did the original work on recognition that showed that it was like 97% effective on white men. Um, and for white women, it was still in the 90s, like 92, 93%. It was pretty effective. Um, but we got to black men, Oh, my goodness. It was down in the 60s, I think. And so similarly with black women, the percentages were outrageous. They were It was just this massive disparity. And they knew when they deployed the technology that this was the case. And in fact, Amazon told police departments, look, if you're going to use this, you have to keep a human in the loop. You can't just take action based on the algorithm because of these disparities. Um, ZERO POLICE DEPARTMENTS THAT PUBLICLY ADOPTED IT SAID THAT THEY WERE USING HUMAN IN THE LOOP. THEY WERE SIMPLY DEPLOYING IT IN WAYS THEY WERE NOT SUPPOSED TO BE. Um, BUT OF COURSE, ALWAYS, the, THE TECHNOLOGY IS BUILT ON DATA SETS OF THE MAJORITY, AND SO THE MINORITIES WILL ALWAYS BE MISREPRESENTED, UNDERREPRESENTED, OR IN SOME WAYS GENERALLY HARMED BY THESE TECHNOLOGIES.
0: Well, and several examples you've brought up have talked about police use of this technology and the ways that it kind of boosts the surveillance state. Um, do you have anything more to share about that? Um,
1: well, my AI class has a unit on surveillance capitalism this semester, which I think um, I, I think that phrase is beautiful. Um, it sums up exactly what's going on. I think we wouldn't, you know, I grew up in the 80s and we were always worried about Big Brother and and government intrusion into our lives and that was not the worry um i don't think that there is much worry about government surveillance especially in the us as there is private companies so the government that any surveillance the government is getting is generally getting from like private data brokers right like people are gathering this data and then selling it Um, sometimes they're selling it to private companies but sometimes they're selling it to the government um, yeah, I just I, I i think the surveillance capitalism phrase is exactly right, that, that that's what surveillance has become in the U.S. at least.
0: So given all of these problems with AI, I'm just curious, are there people who are just categorically against it and won't participate kind of like vegans, but for certain tech instead of animal products?
1: Yeah, um, so like, I I try in some ways to be one of those people, but obviously it's impossible. Um, my, my school's email, it's Google for education, right? Like, I have to use Google products despite the fact that they cast off their don't be evil phrase a long time ago. They just embrace the evil in many ways. Um, like, I try to stay as informed as possible about where some of these things are being deployed and avoid engaging with them. Um, and they were being deployed in so many ways. Uh, a friend told me about how he went to Disney, Disney World a while ago and got a bracelet that tracked his whereabouts everywhere in in the the park. Um, and he was so excited about it. He was like, yeah, I love it. It's fabulous. I, I order food at a counter and I go sit down and they just find me based on the bracelet. And I was like, they do what? Why would you agree to this? This is horrifying. And he's also an ethicist, by the way. I was like, you've got to see why this is awful. Um, and he's like, yeah, but it's convenient. And I think that's why those of us who try to be conscientious objectors can't be because enough people buy into the convenience. Um, I, I can remember there's a class that I've taught for a long time that includes um, paying attention to the the ways that sort of surveillance tech is deployed. For a long time, I had students say things like, look, if it's going to give me ads for things I actually want, that's fine. They can surveil me. And I, you know, for years, I was horrified by this response. And then about five years ago, I taught the class. And I think enough of the the information about why this is bad is getting through that not a single person in my class was like pro-cyborg technologies. They were all like, don't embed anything in my body. My root. I don't want smart homes. I don't want a smart city. I want none of it. Um, and so I think that we're starting to see people understand the harms of this, but it's too late. Like you can't opt out of it. It's just impossible at this point. You're sort of stuck with a lot of it.
0: It reminds me of a guest that we actually had on the show a few years ago who tried to, um, you know, go without Amazon for some number of months and you know, she was able to effectively be like, okay, I'm not going to make any Amazon purchases. I'm not going to watch Prime Video. I'm not going to shop at Whole Foods. Okay, I'm not going to use Goodreads. You know, the list goes on and on and on. But all of a sudden, you realize that, oh, you know, my public library or my university website is hosted on Amazon Web Services. <laughs> and suddenly your opting out isn't a full opt out. It's a partial opt out because of just kind of the buy in of even government entities, as you're saying, into this big tech. Um, so I don't know, but can you be an ethical AI consumer? I mean, what would that even look like? Like when you, Robin, are thinking about this, what are some things that you just all out avoid or things that you seek out when it comes to being an ethical AI consumer?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Um, So I try to opt out of any place I think is going to gather my data. Um, I drive my partner up a wall because I won't use cloud services if I possibly can avoid it. So like my, I have an iPhone, so, you know, already I'm in trouble, Um, but it's always trying to get me to back up into their cloud. And I'm like, no, thanks. Nope. So if anybody ever steals my iPhone or if I break it, like five years of my child's pictures are gone. Um, But like, right, that's the trade-off. Like if I try to opt out of things like this, I know what I'm giving up and it's a lot. And I think this is part of why people don't opt out. Um, but, yeah, like I, I tend to try to opt out of all tracking. Um, almost all of my browsing is done in private browsers. I use DuckDuckGo instead of Google whenever I can. Um, but even that, like I know it's not enough. I also like there's ways that I've just accepted that I can't opt out of it. So like I have a Facebook account. I, I hate Facebook. I think it's terrible. Um, And I know that we have plenty of data that shows that they track people who don't have Facebook accounts. They track everyone across the web, even if you tell them not to. They're doing really bad kinds of data gathering and I still have a Facebook account. It's like my primary way of interacting with friends across the world. When you're an academic, most of the people you know are are scattered around the world. My family's far away. I, I mostly use Facebook to talk to them. Um, But I don't want to, I would love to opt out of Facebook. It'd be wonderful. Um, It's just, there's some trade-offs that we just accept.
0: We're talking about AI and big tech today on A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Rochelle Wilson, and today we're talking with AI theorist and professor Robin Zabrowski. We still have about 15 minutes to take your calls. If you have burning questions about AI or an opinion that you would like to share, um, you can call us at 608 256 2001. Or if, like all of us, you have a Facebook account against your will or a Twitter account, you can find us a public affair on Facebook, Twitter at WORT talk, and your question will get passed on that way. So I want to get back to this long history of people worrying about losing their jobs to robots. Um, Robin Zabrowski, what is actually happening here and what industries are seeing the biggest shift?
1: There are definitely shifts, right? It's the same thing that happened when Um, Automobile workers got replaced by robot arms, but they didn't fully get replaced because there are people whose job it is to oversee the robot arms. Um, I think there's a lot of that happening, is that there are people worried that they're going to lose their jobs. Some people are going to lose their jobs. The world changes, right? We are going to see job loss due to automation, but new jobs tend to arise on the side of it. And I think that's the real worry is most people... Aren't so, it's not so much a question of number of jobs being lost, it's specific people being lost. So like I may be not worried that professoring is going to be taken over by, by chatbots, um, but somebody might, maybe someone who only teaches asynchronous online courses, never meets their students, like maybe they do have something to worry about because if a chatbot can do that job, maybe they specifically would be replaced by it. Um, in part, the numbers still shake out okay because people get retrained to assist the technology. So we get new jobs of people who then have to oversee how the technology is working. Um, I'm laughing that I saw earlier this week. Oh, who was CNET? Uh, CNET started deploying Chat GPT authored articles. So, yeah, and they didn't tell anybody at first. And then it came to light that ChatGPT had been writing articles for them and the articles were a disaster. They were really bad. So when people actually looked at them and started fact checking them, everything was wrong. They were just awful. They were fully hallucinated. Um, And I remember just yesterday or the day before I saw this amazing headline that was like, CNN, it was quoting uh, CNET, sorry, CNET it was quoting them as saying, like, we've paused the use of, of chat GPT generated articles until headlines improve or something like that. <laughs> I was dying. It was amazing. Um, but yeah, like, I'm not super, I don't think journalists are going to be replaced in this way um, unless, you know, we're settling for horrible journalism. Like, that would be the only way that's going to happen.
0: So we do have a caller on the line. John, you're on the air. Welcome to Public Affair. Thank you. What's your uh, question or comment today? My my question is this. It's the obvious big
1: question that nobody seems to want to ask. If even those of us, such as the uh, interviewee, understands the implications of big data, um, and in spite of it still opts for the convenience. Um, what is the future of the human race? What's the implication there?
0: John, I think you just closed out our show. We've got you know 15 <laughs> minutes to answer that gigantic question. <laughs> no, but I, I think you're on to something, John, and something that um, is definitely relevant to this conversation. Do you want to take a stab at starting to answer Robin Zabrowski?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely the right question, right? Like there's questions about the the nature of humanity in the face of these sorts of technologies. Um, I think one of the ways I I can live with myself is thinking that we we need to, to fight harder for regulation of a whole bunch of stuff. Um, unfortunately, there is like five big tech companies that have so much money and power that they just tramp down any attempts at regulation. Um, And also unfortunately in the US, most of our representatives don't understand the technology at all. Like their jobs end up being because of the way American democracy has has broken, their jobs are fundraising rather than actually learning about the the world that they live in and trying to make it better. Um, So when it comes to the actual like specific algorithms and things like that, I really think that pushing for regulation is one of the only ways that things will get better in that regard. Um, and it can't just be regulation. Like, oh, like two, two or three years ago, everybody was making an AI ethics board um, and claiming that they were going to listen to them, and nobody listened to them. And Google disbanded theirs within like a week. Um, and there are huge, like, four hundred page documents that the uh, that I gathered that were like, here's really good things we should be doing but it has no teeth we have no way to make regulators listen and i think that's bad so there's a strong political component here like if you understand this technology you need to fight for regulation or yeah we're kind of doomed in that regard
0: yeah speaking of the doomed future <laughs> as you were talking about you know what might really happen in the case of like jobs and jobs kind of being shifted maybe more than lost wholesale That still felt a little dystopian to me as you were describing it, because I think there's a lot of people who like their relatively analog jobs. And to have tech kind of be in the background humming along, helping as it can, the idea that my core job could be done by someone else, and then I assist that tech instead of doing the core job is like really depressing. (laughs) And it feels like it's you know, it feel it feels like it is taking a a cut at human relationships, and that we're beginning to want to outsource those too. I recently went to see the movie Megan, spelled with a three M three G A N. It's about an engineer who creates an AI powered doll to be a companion for her niece, but if you've seen the trailers, like havoc ensues, and it's just it's the the idea that we would maybe outsource childcare or elder care or therapy, heaven forbid, to this AI just that feels like the dystopian future, and yet it feels closer than ever. What's your take on all of that?
1: Not only closer than ever, but like the, especially the outsourcing therapy, oh, that's done, right? Like we have apps that you can download on your phone that are basically chat bots that are offering actual therapy to people. Um, I remember, first of all, I remember hearing that my college had adopted some of these, and I was like, hello, everyone, this is not okay. You can't do this. Um, And part of it is also, um, there are therapists, uh, there are apps that just facilitate you hooking up with a therapist. But of course, again, it's America, and we learned that the apps were data mining all of the conversations people were having, these sensitive therapist-patient conversations. The the companies were data mining and then selling the data and using the data to train things and stuff. Um, Yeah, really, really awful. and yeah, it's super, super insulting. The idea that your job would be replaced in that. Now you are a helper to that automated job. Super, super insulting. Um, I think that there are interesting ways. And again, I love that you brought up Megan. I haven't seen it yet, but I, I heard about the plot Um And I think that fiction helps us so much to start to ask these questions. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, it was like the the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein. And everybody wanted to talk to me because I was like, it's AI is the Frankenstein story over and over again. That's literally the question of what makes us human? What kinds of things can we create that we might then lose control of? Um, So I I love the bringing of fiction into this. Um, And I tried to think if there were any stories when you mentioned megan i'm trying to think if there are any stories that show a, a not bleak version of this um and I most of them are bleak right even the ones that i love like the movie her that was out uh, several years i loved it but also very bleak um and uh the um what's the one that i was thinking of oh robot and frank nobody seems to have watched this movie robot and frank i can't remember when it was it was I don't know, 10 years ago. It's an adorable story about um, a man suffering from dementia whose high powered, like, lawyer son doesn't want to take care of him and gets him a care robot. Um, but it's very subversive in a lot of ways. Like, the care robot helps him commit crimes. Um, but it's, it's like sort of a, a question on the human condition. And I think it does that well. Um, but real, real people doing some of this, it's not as heartwarming as some of the stories are. Um, the uh, I, I'm thinking, I was at a conference over the summer about social robotics, and one of the keynote speakers, so one of the people that was really important that everybody was there to hear, was talking about their research on social robots and autistic children. And midway through what they were talking about, they actually said something like, Boy, i really wish every autistic kid could have one of these robots because they'd have friends then and at first i was like oh god no um and then they said yeah and also other kids would come want to come over and play with the robot and i just was like this is like you've just told me why you should not be doing research with autistic children and social robots um because it's totally like it's absolutely outsourcing hard work that people should be doing To robots that have no business doing it and it's yeah it's dreadful and it's already happening
0: well and it just we're getting the ethics so wrong and the human connection part of it so wrong on this end that there's also that classic sci-fi question of like if the ai becomes conscious how will we ever know? How will we respect? Uh, will we respect if uh, AI begins to have a will? And if a computer doesn't want to be shut down because that's like unto death to them? I mean, I I don't have any trust in us whatsoever. And it just feels like we're already living in the hellscape. Um, <laughs> our producer sent a message that was just kind of a, a joke, but like a dark joke about BetterHelp, um, which is an online therapy service, and how if they're data mining and they see all the problems that you're having later, you know, Google or whoever can serve you up an ad that, you know, is supposedly helping that problem, but is not helping that problem. And I think Kind of the ad driven nature of all of this is part of why it feels so hellish and why the Internet is just a less fun place to be lately. In my opinion, like I used to kind of have fun like tinkering around on Wikipedia or yeah, meeting my friends on social media and like having a little chat. And now it just feels like I'm inundated with ads and I'm inundated with irrelevant information and I'm inundated with bot written copy and I don't know, it's just, it's a bummer.
1: <laughs> I think bummer really sums it up, right? Like, I remember the, the early days of the web, there was so much promise it was going to be democratized, everything was going to be peer to peer. And then money happened and people realized how much better they could market to us and, and market us. And a handful of websites basically own the internet. And yeah, it's a lot less fun than it used to be.
0: And that was going to get to a question that I had about who is producing this tech. And you talk about the big five and big tech, but um, is are, are they the first ones to be creating AI? Like, who's creating it? And you also mentioned it being not very well regulated, but like, what's a world where it's regulated? Like, are there any regulations? Is there anyone we could be leaning on for this?
1: Um, so as to who's creating it, it's it's often academic and corporate partnerships, um, mostly the, like the, it used to be mostly academic. My experience was back when I started learning about how neural nets worked and who was making them in the nineties, it was mostly academic, but there were all, even back then there were court, uh, corporate partnerships. I remember, um, one university that had a partnership with Lockheed Martin to try and build um, healthcare care algorithms. And this was, you know, the, the late 90s at the time. So it's always kind of been those partnerships because academics don't have money and generally will take money from anyone who wants to give it to us. Um, and so this is part of why these partnerships are kind of dangerous, because the academics, most of us are just like excited about learning stuff. And this is, I mean, part of why I still work in AI is I love the idea that we could build something like us, right? Like we consider humans to be different than other kinds of things in the world. Is it possible that we could build some kind of conscious machine? Like I am the the mad scientist hopeful. That's like, I would love to see that. That would be so cool. Um, but also thank God there are the ethicists like, with me saying wait a second here are all the reasons maybe we shouldn't do that um but yeah like the as far as who we lean on it's got to be government but right now government is just taking the money from big tech and taking no action so we kind of need grassroots movements things like the algorithmic justice league things like those sorts of groups um ai now is a group that grew out of Um, NYU, I think, that also does advocacy work of this kind, that tries to say, this is not okay, this is the information you need to know, and now you need to regulate this.
0: Well, Robin Zabrowski, we're coming up on our last few minutes of the show, and there's always so much more to discuss, but I kind of wanted to go back to our caller's question a little bit, John, who was just kind of pressing on us to talk about what is the role of the human in all of this. And you've described yourself previously as, you know, kind of an AI hopeful. Um, So you're not maybe as cynical as I am coming into this. So (laughs) talk to us, like, how can we bring the human back into the picture?
1: Oh, it's, it's the right question. It's the question. Right. Um, and I, when I say I'm an AI hopeful, it's like I still like to think about what would be necessary to build something conscious. Right. And I am. Thankfully, I'm not actually building the things I'm mostly thinking about the underlying like metaphysics of the universe that might make such a thing possible. Um But I think asking questions about the dehumanization involved in some of this technology is, of course, really important. Um, And I tend to think of AI as two totally different things. Like, on the one hand, when we say AI, we mean these smart algorithms. Um, And that's most of what we mean in the headlines right now. But we also mean the tr- like the old version of ai back in the 50s and 60s when we first started thinking about it we were trying to build something that was that was minded i consciousness is such a tricky loaded word but we wanted something that had a mind right something that was like us um and in some ways i see that as like the most human project right again it's the frankenstein story can we build a thing like us like we really want to do that Um, because we're pretty cool, right? (laughs) Right. Right. Like this is it's the search for alien intelligence. It's the Frankenstein story. It's why we want to see things that are like us. Um, but on the other hand, the ways that that's actually happening in the real world right now are not good. They're harmful in so many ways. Um, And I I might recommend, I just saw um, recently that I I assigned it to my Intro to Cognitive Science class. Emily Bender is an AI theorist who did a lot of, who's done, who does a lot of amazing work on some of these questions. Um, She was one of the authors of the Stochastic Parrots paper that like blew up the AI world recently, um, got Timnit Gebru from Google fired from the the AI ethics uh, work that she was doing. Um, Emily Bender gave a talk to the Cognitive Science Society a year or two ago called oh, so now I forget the name something about uh, resisting dehumanization in the age of AI um, and I highly recommend it there's a copy of it on YouTube it's like an hour long I think but it's wonderful it's perfect she's, she's talking through some of the history of where, what makes us think that a chatbot is going to have a mind? What makes us think it could do the jobs we want it to do? Why we're wrong and why it's important that we sort of regain the humanity in these questions. And I just think she's spot on on this.
0: Well, and I want to wrap up quoting from you, which is it's time for a human revolt. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. I don't see any way we get out of this without some kind of revolt. Well, that's all the time we have for now. I love ending on that note. Thanks so much to our guest for this hour, cognitive science professor Robin Zabrowski. Thanks to Jade for producing the show and to Ben for engineering. And thanks to all of you for tuning in and calling in. Next up is Letters and Politics. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison.
1: Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency, radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime, treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street Morning Afternoon Edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions. Live and direct, we come and never pre recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and